MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill. You can call me that now because I no longer work for Trump's government. Uh, We're going to uh, speak to the author today of the book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, instant bestseller uh, from the New York Times bestseller list. And just truly an incredible uh, piece of work. Please welcome Ellie Mistal. Hi, Ellie. Oh, I am a piece of work. That's the first time I've heard that. (laughs) Deliberate words I've chosen, my friend. Deliberate words. Uh, So first of all, I want to jump in with, because I didn't cover in the final episode the epilogue. I did cover your final chapter, chapter 21. You know, the final battle. The final countdown. Um, And I wanted to ask you about some of the solutions, because... throughout the entire book, first of all, you give us excellent argument points against Uncle Frank, um, which is my name for anybody in your family or anybody you want to talk to that is, uh, you know, steeped in MAGA land. Incredible, Uh, incredible arguments. Well, Allison, that's the the, the first, the working title of the book was um, How to Defeat Your Republican Uncle. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Absolutely perfect. And you know what's great is I actually do have a Republican Uncle Frank. He's the only one in the family. Um, he's very special. He's still invited to to you know certain holidays and things like that. Uh, but we just do, we just avoid the whole political uh, thing. Um, although we do like to go into his phone and sign him up for like the on topic podcast or you know stuff like that. Uh, and then he gets all these alerts and gets very angry. It's fun. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of the solutions because you know we we learn throughout the entirety of the book that the Constitution is garbage. Uh, because it can be abused. And the way that they've set up this whole, uh, l- let's actually talk about that first, this whole consideration of laws, this three-level uh, thing that they do where they just created out of whole cloth their ability to to decide on these on these issues with, you know, um, yes. uh, you, you know, you tell, tell us. Yeah, so in, in Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton says that the Supreme Court should be the least dangerous branch of government because it has neither the purse nor the sword, which means that it can neither tax people, so it doesn't have any money, um, nor does it control the army, so it doesn't have any weapons. And so it can't enforce laws other than by convention and consent of the other branches. And I've said that the next time Alexander Hamilton would be as wrong, he would be firing his gun into the air while Aaron Burr shot him. Um, like he was, he ended up being completely wrong about that because he didn't see Marbury v. Madison coming. That is the 1803 case where the Supreme Court 
gave the power to declare laws unconstitutional unto itself. That's not in the Constitution. That wasn't what the Founding Fathers thought it could do. But Thomas Jefferson, who was president at the time, decided to let it go because the Supreme Court said Jefferson was right. And Jefferson wanted to be right. He wanted to win his little internecine battle with the outgoing administration of John Adams. That was a little partisan politics right there. Um, and so the Supreme Court gained for itself this power of judicial review, the idea that you can uh, that the Supreme Court has the final say on what is or is not constitutional. That's not how a lot of other advanced democracies work, right? We don't regularly see the English high court overruling acts of parliament. We don't often see the French high court overruling whatever republic they're on right now when, they, when it comes to laws, right? Dem democracies let the people vote on what laws should or should not be. Um, we do things a little bit differently in this country and that was not by design. That is a power the Supreme Court called upon itself. So one possible solution is called jurisdiction stripping, right? That you can, that Congress can write a law that says the Supreme Court is not allowed to review said law. Um, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, uh, like all of the above, let's try everything. <laughs> On the other hand, I, I've analogized it a little bit to like a shark. Like you can tell the shark, you're not allowed to eat me, but the shark is not obligated to care. <laughs> Telling mm -hmm. to the court, like, you can't rule on this just means the court's going to say, well, actually, we can. And then we'll be kind of in the situation that we already are in, where, like, individual states will be like, I'm following the Supreme Court, not Congress. Whereas other states will be like, I'm following Congress, not the Supreme Court. And so I don't know that that actually solves the problem. What, what solves the problem were some of my other ideas about restricting the power of the Supreme Court from the inside out, as opposed from the outside in. Yeah. And, and so some of these other solutions that you come up with, and I, you know, I don't know much. I'm just a quasi suspect class. Uh, you know, so I, who, who the hell am I? Uh, but what I was really interested in um, are, are three ideas here. And one's way out there. Uh, but, but the other two are awesome. And you talk about the inner in the last chapter, you talk about the interstate compact. Um, and it, tell us what that is and how it's kind of, you know, after all of these different scenarios that that you throw up uh in in all of these different cases there is kind of a way with voting rights at least because as you said 25 percent of the amendments after the bill of rights have to do with expanding and protecting voting rights an entire quarter um so what, tell us about the interstate compact yeah so the original sin if you will of the constitution is that it didn't let everybody vote like that that's actually the i think the easiest way to talk about the real problem at the founding it explicitly only it, it decided that voting was coming up from the states not down from the federal government and that it could be limited to wealthy landowning white men right and you can almost read the history of an Amer of america as the history of people trying to overcome that fatal flaw um, one of the most obvious places where that flaw still holds us back today is the Electoral College, where states have power to vote for the president more so than people do, right? So that Wyoming gets three Electoral College votes, right? Um, by population, if Wyoming gets three Electoral College votes, California, every voter in Wyoming is worth, I think it's like 68 now, voters in California. So that's not that's not a democracy, but that's what the Electoral College 
That's how the Electoral College kind of forces us to choose the president. That is why of the last eight elections, um, the Republicans have lost, the, the Republican candidate for president has lost the popular vote seven of the last eight uh, presidential elections. And yet Republicans and Democrats have shared power um, over that time, right? So this is bad. Let's just, let's just be clear. Like that, this is a bad way to run a country. So one idea is this interstate compact, which would mean that the states themselves agree that whoever wins the popular vote will win their electoral votes. If you get states uh, uh, that represent 270 electoral college votes, which is right now what it takes to win the presidential election, 271, um, what it takes to win, no, 270, sorry, it's 269, 269 is the tie. Um, to, to win the presidential election, then you effectively have the popular vote winner winning the presidential election every time, as long as you get 270 electoral college uh, states representing 270 votes to agree. We're pretty close. I forget what the most current number is on, but you know, over 150 electoral college votes have already committed um, states with uh, representing 150 electoral college votes have committed to this plan, at least in theory, with a couple of more states kind of considering it, their bills all the time. Um, in yeah, those... I think there's uh, 88 other electoral votes where they've passed it through one house of right? their legislature. So yeah. we're, we're, this could be a thing, um, and it would obviate the electoral college by an agreement between the states. I like the idea. Here's the problem. And I think we all saw this in 2020, right? Each state is going to be, each state has their own way of determining who won the election, right? Because we don't have one federal election system, because we have 50 different state electoral systems, it's all different in terms of who can vote, when they can vote, how they can vote, so on and so forth, right? Um, kicking it down to every state to decide who really won the presidential election is dangerous, just straight up like, recipe for civil unrest dangerous, right? Um, in terms of how the laws work. The other problem that I have with it is, and I don't want to sound institutionalist, but it, <laughs> it's difficult for me to understand how we can have a popular vote election when we do have 50 states that have various different rules for who can vote, what kind of ID they need to vote, how early they can start voting, whether or not they can correct um, mistakes in their voting, right? So you can imagine kind of like, let's say Oregon, uh, mandatory registration. So like everybody of voting age is automatically registered, right? That would make potentially a lot of Oregonians um, vote. That would certainly give them a lot of opportunity to vote in a completely different way than Texans can vote, right? So you'd have one state really encouraging people to go to the polls, another state dissuading people to go from the, to the polls, and yet we're going to decide the president on who got the most popular votes. That's actually, I don't want to say it's unfair, but it's a little unfair to Texans, and obviously they can change that through electing better leaders, but you see the problem here, right? So the right. interstate compact, the way that I, I put it in the book, it's a little bit like trying to duct tape a plane duct tape the wing to the plane right maybe it works but do you really want to fly in it do you want to be the first one to fly in that plane um because the downsides feel very very dangerous 
Yeah, especially with more v. Harper on the on the block, um, which just allows state legislatures, which are gerrymandered to shit, right, to to be able to just oh, overthrow the will of the people, and we're going to decide basically what Trump wanted right. to do. If in the states can say we're going to commit our electoral votes to the popular vote winner overall, and not the popular vote winner in our state. What's the top, the same state from saying, actually, we're going to declare our, give our electoral votes to whoever our state legislature decides or whoever our governor decides. Um, so you see, it, it can get real messy real quick. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and, and besides, and, and you've talked about this a lot. I've talked about this a lot. Let's say we do pass uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act or some Voting Rights Act, even if we get a filibuster carve out um, or if we codify Roe, for example. Um, that still has to go up to this Supreme Court. So we need to do something with this Supreme Court. And that's where you bring up the idea of something called, well, I mean, there, it's a very popular idea to do term limits, right? But that's kind of tough because Article 3 of the Constitution. Uh, but what, t tell us about your idea of senior status because that doesn't, it's a term limit, but it's not, right? right. So, so the Article 3 of the Constitution says the justices serve while in good behavior and that has been interpreted to mean they serve for life. And you can't change that lifetime appointment without a constitutional amendment. But it doesn't say where they serve for life. It says they serve as judges. It doesn't say they have to serve as Supreme Court judges for life. And so what we can do and what is actually done on the lower circuits is this thing called senior status. After you reach X amount of years old, I think it's 62, and you've been on the court for at least uh, the bench for at least 15 years, you are eligible to take senior status. That means that you are you you are removed from your seat, allowing whoever is the governor of your state um, or the president of the United States, sorry, in, in, the, in the federal system, president, president of the United States to appoint a replacement for your seat. But you're still on the court. You can still hear cases. You can still participate in decisions. You're still in the pool of judges that is chosen, um, that could be chosen to hear a particular case. You don't sit, when the whole court sits as a body, the senior status judges are not part of it. But in the kind of case-by-case -case, uh, decision-making process, senior status judges are in fact um, still there. Um, an example of this is David Souter. Um, David Souter, um, Republican appointee, um, decided to retire when he was still in good health. Um, uh, he just kind of hated his job. Um, Souter's, a, Souter's a weird guy. Um, was replaced by Sonia Sotomayor on the Supreme Court. But he's still a judge. Mm -hmm. He has senior status on the First Circuit. You can still have a case where Souter, Souter's your federal judge. He's still alive and healthy and, and pumping out decisions. He's not pumping out decisions for the Supreme Court. So you can imagine, you can kind of extend this analogy um, and, and make it so that a, a judge after a set amount of time um, takes senior status that opens up the seat, but that judge is still a part of the Supreme Court. You can also uh, rotate them down to the lower federal circuits. Again, the Constitution doesn't say you have to serve on the Supreme Court for life, so you can take your senior status Supreme Court judge and move them back down to the you know lower circuit courts where, like Souter, they can still participate in the, in, the, in the decisions and draw a full salary. The, the advantages of this are both that you've got, the, it's important to link this up with the idea of ethics reform, 
Right now, the Supreme Court is the only court in America that operates without a statutory ethics rule. Each justice decides for themselves when they recuse or when they don't. This is the problem with Clarence Thomas, who's obviously mm -hmm. compromised because his wife is part, part of the insurrection and he's going to be ruling on insurrection cases. He should be forced to recuse themselves. But when you have judges with senior status, when one recuses themselves, there are there is a pool of other justices to take their place. So you can imagine a situation where Clarence Thomas has to recuse because of Jenny Thomas, but David Souter, who's still alive and, 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 and healthy, or Anthony Kennedy, who's still alive and healthy, or Stephen Breyer, who's still alive and healthy, Sundra Day O'Connor still alive, not, not, uh, unfortunately not in the best of health, um, could step in and hear the case in lieu of Clarence Thomas. Um, if you believe that justices should be impartial, that shouldn't matter, right? You know, yeah, it shouldn't matter who appointed him. Right? It only only gets tetchy if you think that actually the, the whole point of Clarence Thomas is to force the Republican agenda down your throat. Then you might not be happy if Thomas is replaced by Souter for one case or another where, where, where Thomas is conflicted out. So senior status has a real opportunity to be kind of a soft term limit without the need of a constitutional amendment and the and the and the idea has been endorsed by everybody from larry tribe to um other commentators on, on the court um in terms of something that can be done without a constitutional amendment yeah it would also solve the problem that we need to double the federal bench anyway we need a lot more uh, just the judges on the federal bench and um i mean it's it, it it just makes sense, and then of course we don't. I don't think we need to talk about expanding the court. But question for because that's just an obvious. We have to do that, or codifying Roe and codifying voting rights doesn't mean anything. Um, and we have thirteen circuits. We should have thirteen justices. But how did we establish that senior status rule? Congressional legislation? Just piece of legislation. Mm, now, now one of the problems with senior status is that you you pass the law. And then you go into the Supreme Court and you say, this is legal, right? This is what Article 3 means, right? And John Roberts says, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, that, and that, that becomes... <laughs> Maniacal laugh. Right? That becomes the problem with so many of the ideas that people have to limit the power or change the power of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court right now gets to set its own rules of existence, that's dumb and bad and not how it was intended, but it is what happened. So my argument is always, tell me your best idea for how to reform the court, then give me five, six, seven, eight, nine justices who agree with you, put them on the court, then pass your piece of legislation, right? Because yeah. like you have to, it's the, the analogy I've made, it's like, look, you can put the radio tracking collar on the bear after you tranquilize it. Not before. That's how people get eaten. <laughs> right. And, and it, it reminds me of every time I ha game these out and do the flow chart of what happens. And, and just like the famous who's on first thing where every single discussion ends up on third base. I keep, you know, like expand the court. It just right. ends up at expand the court. That's where all we have roads to go. lead back right now. All roads lead back to a six, three conservative majority who does not care about your legal arguments. And if you want to change that for whatever creative idea you have, you've got to change the math on the court itself. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we've got uh, a few questions here, six, seven, eight questions. Uh, we'll go through these. Let's do it. Uh, pretty pretty quickly from Anonymous, pronoun she and her. Hey, Ellie, your book is a must read for all newish 
U.S. citizens like me, so thank you. My question is, if the Republican-controlled states succeed in triggering new constitutional convention to enact changes that the majority of the people do not want, see the Texas GOP platform, what recourse do we, the people, actually have to challenge or prevent that from happening? What can we do today to avoid that scenario? Thank you for considering my question. I mean, unfortunately, the only recourse is the same recourse that Lincoln had, right? War. If states want to secede from the Union, there is only one way to keep them there, right? There's boots on the ground. Um, um, I, I, I don't want that to happen. I don't think that that's the only way forward. But if states want to push it, I mean, we have been here before in this country. Um, uh, if, if states don't want to be a part of what we're trying to do, the only way to force them, and that works to the other side too, right? Like you, you see arguments that maybe blue states should secede. You know, I've, I've seen the map that's like Canada with two hooks, right? <laughs> Just lagging down, down the coast, right? That's, that's a fun looking map yeah. to me. Over here in California, we're like, can't we just build a wall and put our, <laughs> our net, our, our guard out front of it? Yeah. Nothing to stop New York, California, New England, whatever from seceding. Unless a Republican president gets in charge and wants to use the army, and then there's a lot to stop those states from seceding, right? As yeah. as we've are as we found out 150 years ago. So unfortunately, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about these these arguments and these issues is that I don't feel like people under fully appreciate how thin paper law is, right? how thin the rule of law is once you start ignoring it once you start breaking all of these norms once you kind of go down this path it goes from normal country under the rule of law to failed states um, under military control super quickly don't believe me ask the romans right ask ask the roman republic what happened when they went away from established legal norms and people started beating people up in the Senate? It went from Republic to Imperator super quick, a generation or two. And, and, and that, that, that could be what we're looking at um, if we don't kind of defend our very precious and very thin democracy. Yeah, no, agreed. Uh, and uh, this next question, uh, Ellie, it comes from uh, Josie, pronoun she and her, and it's about C SCOTUS expansion. What what would need to happen to expand the Supreme Court? Is, is it a good idea, given the possibility of an authoritarian president beating Biden in, in 2024? Well, again, on the on the on the straight law, it's a simple bill. Article three says it's up to Congress to constitute the Supreme Court. That has inter been interpreted to mean that Congress can change the number of justices on the Supreme Court whenever it wants. In fact, Congress has changed the number of justices on the Supreme Court multiple times in American history. It is a law like no other. It passes the House. It passes the Senate. The filibuster, not in the Constitution either. Just for, for, for anybody from West Virginia who might be listening, filibuster also <laughs> not in the Constitution. So it passes the House, passes the Senate, signed by the president. Boom, more judges. That, I mean, that's it's as simple as that. In fact, we are overdue for a lower court expansion. We used to uh, yeah, yeah. the lower courts, you know, pretty much every 20, 30 years um, because there are more of us now. The lower courts are overworked. The Ninth Circuit is covering arguably an entirely too many uh, um, states. We should probably have a circuit split of the Ninth Circuit to go to 14th Circuit. Like we 
I think the judicial conference said something like we need like basically a hundred more district court judges today just to handle the workload. So like court expansion is coming. The question is which party is going to do it right now. I am such a fan of court expansion that I don't, I don't even care which party does it at this point. Like, cause, cause if Republicans do it first, I think that would be bad, but then maybe that will make Democrats do it second. Right? Like, like it can't get worse. Right. The, the 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 idea that we're at a six three conservative control now. If Democrats do something and Republicans do something back, what? So it's sixteen thirteen. Is that is that worse somehow? It's because not from where I sit. No, and and mathematically, more chances for people to die or retire and put more people in. <laughs> and one of my big arguments is that just just by having more people is a moderating influence on the Supreme Court, right? And it's something yeah, that a totally. lot of people don't think through. But like one of the problems with the Supreme Court is not just that it's conservative and Republican, it's that it is extreme. Even look at the Dobbs decision, right? The Dobbs decision, at first, Mississippi only asked it to uphold its 15-week abortion ban. It didn't ask them to overturn Roe v. Wade until Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, until Amy Coney Barrett got on the court, until they knew they had five votes for that. And then they went, full hog, right? Even amongst the conservatives, Roberts wasn't for completely overturning Roe v. Wade. He wanted to keep, a, he wanted to uphold the 15 week ban, but he wasn't for overturning the whole thing. He went along with them. But you can imagine a 1613 court where the Republicans have a difficult time keeping all 16 of their people on the same page for their extreme uh, 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 decisions. So even a 1613 court, not only do I argue could it possibly be worse than what we have now? I would argue that it's better. And that's still with having Republican conservative control of the courts. Yeah, no, that's what I think, too, when they say, well, you know, if we elect more senators uh, for the Dems who are willing to expand the court and we do it and then the Republicans get in, they'll do it. And then when we get back in, we'll do it. I'm like, great. I don't care if we have fucking 50 Supreme Court justices. Let's go. Right. We'll find enough chairs. You'll be fine. <laughs> we have chairs. <laughs> uh, next up from Steve. Pronouns he and him. Ellie, is there a t-shirt with your image on it? If so, where can I get one? Secondly, what do you think of the prospects of a right to privacy amendment? Could it be made appealing to both sides by pandering to some conservative needs for the right to privacy? I don't think so. But what do you think? Nope. Absolutely not. <clears throat> we couldn't get the Equal Rights Amendment passed, ratified. There's no way that I think that we can get a right to privacy amendment ratified. The libertarians, so-called libertarians, who might be interested in rights to privacy, given the increasing problems that they have with the surveillance state and whatever, they will not uh, play ball because everybody understands that a right to privacy protects women and pregnant people. And yeah, and, and the red states are going to know, like, hey, what, what do we need to do that for? The, this Supreme Court already protects the rights to privacy I want and gets rid of the rights to privacy I don't. There are so many things that can't happen in this country because almost half of this country hates women and hates people in the LGBTQ community. Like, it, like, and that is the stop for that stops them from from considering other entirely rational plans there is no reason for a, a person like Rand paul um who who claims you know who's a libertarian and that kind of like i read Anne ran in, in in college and that became my personality like he's but there's no reason for that guy to be against a right to privacy amendment except 
for the fact that it would protect women and people in the LGBTQ community. And Rand Paul doesn't want to do that. And so he'd rather kind of fight against the surveillance state on the edges than actually fix it because the fixing it, the benefits would, would, would be dispersed amongst the population. Yeah, it fixes it for everyone, not right. just him. Uh, all right, this next one, I think the answer is going to be third base, like we've done, expand the court, but uh, the the pardon power, is, the way, is there a way to limit it? This is from Beth, pronoun she and her. Limitations she wants to see is you can't offer a pardon to anyone you're related to, <laughs> uh, uh, or all pardons must be publicly announced, no secret pardons allowed, uh, but this is a very broad constitutional power, isn't it, Elliot? It would probably require an amendment, and again, third base. It would 100% require an amendment because the Constitution is actually really super clear. The president can use their pardon power, and I say there because I still hold out hope that one day a non-man will be president, but the president can use their pardon power however they want, just mm -hmm. however they want, for whatever they want. They can pardon, they can commute. Um, they can't pardon and commute state crimes, but yeah. the president is the head of the federal government. They are the head of the of the enforcement of the uh, uh, of the federal government, and so it stands to reason they have a relatively unlimited um, pardon power. I was even surprised because <clears throat> it came up during the Trump administration. I coming until the Trump administration, I misunderstood the pardon power, and I thought it had to be at least more narrowly uh, uh, focused on a specific crime. You know, I pardon you for this, but no, 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 I was wrong. It turns out, you know, and I learned this the hard kind of because of Trump, you can just pardon people for everything, anything you you can't pardon people prospectively. So you can't, you can't do the James Bond and you have a license to kill, but, <laughs> but right. in the past, you can say like everything that you do from uh, uh, July, 2022, anything you've done before then you are pardoned for. And that that can be an effective presidential uh, um, pardon, which is uh, idiotic to me. But again, it kind of goes back to my overall point in the book, the idea that these kind of white male slaveholding colonists thought of everything and their words are like gospel that that's just wrong. It's just <laughs> wrong. many of them were in their 30s. Right. Can you imagine somebody saying, well, you know. Chris Hemsworth and uh, Chris Pratt, Pratt wrote this script and we can never deviate from it. No, they're like, <laughs> dude, they're dude bros who had some good ideas, some terrible ideas and didn't think of any everything. The pardon power, I think, is one obvious example where they, they, they probably didn't either. They didn't think it through all the way or they were way more comfortable with kind of monarchical control than we would be in the modern world. Yeah, and you even brought that up. I think it was, uh, if I remember correctly, Madison, who didn't even want to enumerate the Bill of Rights because he said some future asshole is going to think those are the only rights. And so I'm going to throw the ninth and 10th in here um, to, to just remind everybody that they aren't. Yeah. And this is an amendable uh, you know, pile of garbage. Madison uh, was worried that what Alito said in the Dobbs decision that because it wasn't written down in the Constitution, there's no right to abortion. She was worried that some idiot would do exactly that. And that's why he didn't want to write the Bill of Rights. But he also wanted the Constitution ratified, right? Madison was a politician 
more than anything else, right? He wasn't he he wasn't a philosopher, you know, sitting um, in, in a in a in an ivory tower smoking a corncob pipe. He was on the ground trying to get a political document ratified, and the Bill of Rights was his compromise with his political opponents. The idea that this compromise now represents the sum total of the human experience is just it's just wrong. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Josie had another question, too, but I think we've answered it. Um, she's just basically asking, can SCOTUS uh, justices get fired for an inadequate job performance? I think we've we've covered yeah, that. No, the only so. way to remove a Supreme Court justice is through the 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 the, uh, the official impeachment procedures that apply mm-hmm. to every federal official, including the president. And I also point that out in, in a way to, to to say that it's a lot easier to expand the court than it is to retract the court. You can't fire these people. And we've already seen how difficult it is to impeach a federal official, even one as as odious uh, um, as the former guy. So contraction is difficult. Expansion, I I keep coming back to, it's the constitutionally preferred mechanism to deal with what we are dealing with. Yeah. Um, uh, next up from Migs, our friend Migs, pronoun she and her. Ellie, I hope you're well. My burning question. Have you seen affirmative action around intersectional abortion struggle change minds or cause people to double down on their views at a legal level? In other words, do you find affirmative action to be more divisive than community building around the topic of intersectionality and abortion in a courtroom with a jury? As a African-American male who went to Harvard College and Harvard Law School, and then worked in corporate America. I can honestly say that I have not, that there is no issue that will lose me a white liberal friend or, 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 or cause white conservative friends to kind of flip a switch quite like affirmative action. And I have had to learn to understand why. And I, and I think what it is, is that white people generally walk around this world like at the very least being white is okay and so some of them think that it's a privilege some of them think it's the most important thing in the world but it's very difficult when you tell white people a certain kind of white person that being white is not an advantage because they go straight to well it's actually a disadvantage and that can't possibly be true right So the thing that people of color have to deal with kind of on a daily basis, kind of knowing their color could or will be used against them in various situations, there are white people who can't can't handle that concept for a week. And certainly when it's applied to their children, that their children's whiteness doesn't benefit them in this way or that way. It just, there are certain people where it just flips a switch and it's really hard to get them to understand pretty much anything else, right? I have, I have made all of the arguments for affirmative action from the standpoint that A, it's the idea that undeserving people of color are getting to school is just flatly wrong. That's not how affirmative action works. I've made all the arguments that the first kind of affirmative action that colleges and universities um, engage in is geographic affirmative action because they all universities kind of sort their classes by geography right but 
black and brown people are not evenly spread out throughout the country, right? So if you're going to commit to saying we're going to take at least five kids in our entering class from Iowa, you're essentially saying you're going to take at least five white kids. But if you're only going to take two kids from, uh, you're, if you're only going to take five kids from San Francisco, then all of the Asian Americans who live in San Francisco are basically like fighting in a paper bag for those five spots, right? So like that geographic affirmative, and then legacies, another huge problems. And then the final argument that I've always made is like, do you want your white children to learn in an all white environment? Mm. Don't you understand that that's actually bad for your kids? Not mine, who are going to be forced to learn in a diverse environment, no matter where they are. But yo, kids are the ones who are who are losing out on the lived experience and knowledge of a diverse a group of friends and classmates. And I can make those arguments to some people, and they get it. But the people who don't, it's 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 you hit a real wall with what they're willing to hear. So I am not surprised that affirmative action affirmative action has always been something. Um, that there is a certain kind of person that's been going against. I'm not at all surprised that it's going to go down next year. Frankly, I'm, if anything, I'm more surprised that it's lasted this long. I mean, it's really like Anthony Kennedy um, in, in the 2000s, in the teens, I mean, kind of flipped the script a little bit because I, I thought Kennedy was going to take it down himself um, in, in the Fisher cases. Um, now the conservatives have the votes and it's going away and I don't think there's anything that can save it. I've there, there are white people I know that that flip out about this more than they flip out more than pro-lifers, uh, alleged pro-lifers um, flip out over abortion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. Alleged pro-lifers. Thank you. Because they are not <laughs> they are not pro-lifers. Right. Um, uh, just two more questions here. Uh, your thoughts from anonymous pronouns, she and her, your thoughts on people with disabilities as a protected class. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Yep. I think they are. I think they should be. I don't know that I got six justices that agree with me on that. And, and the idea about progress, pr protected class status is, is one of those things that gets a little bit wonky and jargony uh, um, because it's because it's not again, it's not in the Constitution. It's not in the statute statutes. The Supreme Court made up a rule. And the rule is <laughs> um, if the government does a law that disadvantages certain people in a protected class, the Supreme Court is going to be way more skeptical about that law than a law that doesn't disadvantage a protected class, right? So that's one right, rule. And that's that the it, judicial review that I was talking right? about at the beginning with the strict scrutiny and the, yeah. Exactly, exactly, right? So strict scrutiny, that means that probably much if the government does a, makes a law that's against a protected class, the government has to stop doing that law. Now that is a framework the Supreme Court made up for itself. And then it and then it doubled down on that on making up that one thing by making up this idea of protected classes that there are some classes that have been historically um, marked for discrimination or whatever um, some ism that the Supreme Court should have a heightened uh, level of, of protecting and then it's made up which people are in that class yeah, right yeah they get to decide who's in the so, classes so that they can therefore decide what gets scrutiny and what really doesn't you know i i i think it's all kind of dumb and i think they made all of it up <laughs> right which is why you know at the beginning when you were saying you're a quasi-protected class like i cannot tell you if a woman is in a protected class or not i would argue that they should be but the supreme court says oh it's actually just a quasi-protected class which is again 
a phrase that means nothing that they made up. I can't tell you if LGBTQ people are in a protected class, black people, definitely, recent immigrants, definitely, but like dis disabled people, probably, right? That's kind of where, where you go for this. I, I, I think it would be far easier to say, if the government is discriminating against people, we're gonna assume that it's wrong unless they have like a super good reason. And there are occasionally super good reasons, right? I've, I've, I've made the argument, right? That if I want to um, be a Victoria's Secret underwear model, there would be reasons, probably pretty good ones, why I couldn't get that job. That, does, that doesn't make me feel happy, but like I understand it from the perspective of Victoria's Secrets, right? So like there's, there, there are, these, these are called bona fide um, business reasons for um, uh, people to be discriminated against in one fashion or another. But the assumption should always be that no discrimination. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always found it weird that they decided to try to classify every single other person besides straight, cis, white men, instead of just saying straight, cis, white men, you get less consideration. You know, Allison, one of the things that I've, I've tried to get people to understand through the book and through some of my other writings is that another, you know, I was saying one way to tell the story of America is through, you know, the opportunity, uh, people trying to correct the original sin and get voting rights, right? Another way of kind of understanding what's really happened in America over these past 250 years on this, everybody else is just trying to get to the same level of legal recognition rich white men had in 1787. Mm -hmm. That's all we want, right? <laughs> like just, just treat us like you would have treated a rich white person in 1787. Yeah, and rich is the key too, right? Because they didn't even want poor white dudes to vote. So at the, in the in beginning, early on. Right? What, we, we were just talking about affirmative action. I've always said that affirmative action should have an economic um, um, yeah. aspect to it, right? That, that like, you know, look my my kids are black right they're going to have certain racial hurdles and challenges that other kids will white kids will not have but we also ain't poor i mean we're broke we're not poor right this is <laughs> difference right <laughs> and like you know if, if you know the the kinds of advantages that my kids are going to have in terms of their education and their exposure and their experience you know they shouldn't get the same affirmative action bump as um, you know, some black kid who's living in foster care um, uh, uh, and is an orphan, right? Like that, that, that kid's going to have a whole different, you know, should, whatever the bump you want to talk about, that kid should probably get more of a bump than mine. Um, but, e but as you say, like even, even now, you've got people who won't extend rights and responsibilities um, and, and opportunities to other poor white folk. It's just that a lot of those poor white, white folks are just like, yeah, as long as them long we're not getting anything to them black people it's all like that's that's the problem right that the poor white folk won't join forces with other people they 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 want to still join forces with the rich white folks that and that's why we lose or why they win i don't know how you <laughs> <laughs> one of the many reasons finally uh this is a uh, two i'm just going to combine these two questions because basil he him wants to know if humor has always been an aspect of your professional life or if you've created space for it in these recent fuckery years and then daniel he him wants to just hear your monster truck voice friday 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 we're gonna be on with allison and <laughs> we'll sell you the whole seat but you'll only need the edge 
Um, we're going to destroy the Constitution. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Um, humor. Yes, it's been integral to my entire career um, because I talk about law. And if you talk about law in a certain way, people will just shut down, shut out, close their eyes. It's, it can be a boring, dry subject, right? It's incredibly important, but it's boring. And it's there's a lot of jargon and there's a lot of technical terms. And sometimes it's like, you know, reading, you know, does, any, does anybody read the, man, when they buy, when people buy a new car, does anybody still read the manual? Right? <laughs> no, you just get in, you drive, you figure it out as you go along. So like I've tried to use humor, I use vocal modulation, I will use any trick that I have in my bag to get people engaged and to understand the critical things that are happening in the third branch of government, right? There, there are tons of reporters on the first branch of government, on Congress, right? Ton, whole White House press corps, I'm just following around the president everywhere he goes, we just gotta, we gotta watch the, anything the president says is the most, like we got a whole, you know, uh, a profession basically dedicated to that, right? They're like five guys yeah. who, who, who who talk about the court in the political way that it is, right? And really it's three guys and, and five women who, who, who do this work, right? And the, I, I find it important to try to get people to care about this as much as I do, as I, cause I, cause I honestly believe, and this is a great kind of way to end this discussion. Like, I honestly believe that if people just understood what the court was doing, as well as I understood what the court was doing, they would be as angry about what the court is doing as I am. It's, I don't have to actually spin anything. If I can just tell people what's happening, people get pissed off on, on their own. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's why I appreciate this book so much. And I appreciate the humor aspect. That's why I did a podcast on the Mueller investigation, because that report was a snoozer. And then, of course, when he gets up to Congress, the number one trending word on Twitter was pizzazz. He didn't have enough fucking jazz hands or something for right. people to be all into it. So I'm like, all right, we got to make this. People need a shot. I mean, if you look at one of the things that the January 6th committee has done so well, I think, right? Yes, um, yes. They made it a show. Secret surprise witnesses and live testimony and video surveillance and here's some CGI like they've they've made catch up on the wall and right? a strangle of the guy yeah yeah they made it a damn yeah. show and people need that people need to be able to watch something while they're eating nachos to like kind of lock in and I try to do the same thing for the Supreme Court in my book. Well, I'm very glad that you do. And uh, I, I can't imagine anyone listening has not already bought their copy of Allow Me to Retort. But if you haven't, buy it. It's it's hot as fuck on your bookshelf. And, you know, if you bring somebody home, as John Waters said, if they don't have books, don't sleep with them. Uh, I, I want to I thank you very much for answering uh, our patrons' questions. And uh, I, I really hope that we get to talk again soon as the midterms approach. We have a lot of work to do because there's a lot that we have to do. Voting, voting, voting is important but it isn't the only thing Raphael and, Warnock, uh, John Fetterman these are people mm -hmm. who can win and they're running against idiots <laughs> idiots in this approval <laughs> okay I love your monster truck voice thank you very much uh, everybody thank you so much for listening until next time please take care of yourselves take care of each other take care of the planet and take care of your mental health oh and vote blue over Q I've been AG and this is the MSW book club the MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reader and Moxie Design Studios. 
The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.